0: Exodus chapter 34. Now, um, when we left off last week in Exodus 34, Moses was on Mount Sinai and he's still up there on Mount Sinai. Having an amazing time of connection with and communion with God. And this is really sort of in the context of what we might call rebuilding or reestablishing covenant and relationship between Israel and between the Lord, their God because God had made a covenant with Israel, we saw that way back in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. And then many of the laws of the covenant in 21, 22, 23. We saw all that together. But then after that, Israel had done something so disgraceful, so offensive to the Lord that we might have very well thought that God just just ended the covenant. Say, that's it. I never want to have anything to do with you again. And that was the whole debacle at the golden calf. Do you remember that? But God, in the richness of his grace, in the greatness of his mercy, using the intercession of Moses, using the repentance of his people, he said, I want to reestablish covenant with you, my people. And now when Moses meets with God and this very closely connected, now, I don't know if the right word is intimate, because intimate just might have different associates, but it's just close. It's this vital connection with the Lord. They're on Mount Sinai. Now God speaks to them very specifically about reestablishing and renewing the covenant that He made with them before. Right here in verse 10. And He said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as not has been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. God said, I will make a covenant with you, Israel. I'm not finished with you. You sinned at the golden calf, but Moses interceded for you. You've repented. Let's come back to this covenant that I made with you before. And let's begin anew. And God lays out before them all over again, this beautiful promise of a land of Canaan for them, that they weren't to live at Mount Sinai forever, but they were going to move on from Mount Sinai and come to the promised land. But when they came in there, they would have to dispossess a people, the Canaanite people, who had occupied that land for hundreds of years, but had grown so ripe in their wickedness. When I say ripe, I mean spoiled in the sense of ripeness. God had announced some 400 years before that the Canaanites were ready to be judged. But in his mercy, he gave them hundreds and hundreds of years to repent, to get their act together. But they did not. And so now God was going to bring them into the land and they would need the hand of God to do it. And God said he would do it. Look at it there in Verse 10. God says, I will do marvels. And then he said, all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. God made it very plain. I'm going to send you in with miraculous power, with marvels in your midst. And God sent those marvels, did he not? When they crossed the Jordan River and it parted for them so that they could go across. Wasn't that a marvel? When the walls of Jericho came down, wasn't that a marvel? When the sun appeared to stand still in the sky at the prayer of Joshua, wasn't that a marvel? God did it with all these remarkable works, bringing them into the land. But I want you to notice one other thing there in verse 10. He says, I'll do marvels so that all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. In other words, God did it not only for the sake of Israel, but so that all surrounding nations would see and would know that it was God doing the work. Always remember this, that even though God wanted to work in Israel, he wanted to do such a work in Israel that other people would see it and they would see the great God who reigns in heaven by the work that he did in Israel. And really, isn't that God's pattern for the work he wants to do among us? I'll just make the analogy to your life and to mine. God wants to do such a work in my life so that other people look on and say, the Lord is with him. I want some of that. And that's exactly how he wanted to work in and through Israel and in and through your life as well. Well, he continues on verse 12, giving them commands to be separate. You're going to go into the land of Canaan, but you got to become separate from the Canaanites. Don't go into the land of Canaan and become a Canaanite here. Verse 12. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going. Lest it be a snare in your midst, but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you, And you eat of his sacrifice and you take one of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons to play the harlot with their gods. God said, when you go into Cain in verse 13, you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images. Now, I find fascinating that this is actually a repeating of many of the commands that God gave to Israel in previous chapters of the book of Exodus. And basically, from about verse 12 all the way through verse 26, you're going to find a repetition of many of these commands. Some of them are found in Exodus chapter 20. Even more of them are found in Exodus chapter 23. And so we've already talked about these things when we went through them. But I do want to remind you that we talked about these things in great depth right there in our video studio in what we called our conversational expositions where it was myself and David Wally and and Nate Wagner all sitting around a table in like 10 minute little video segments where we went in depth about these different commands and laws that God gave to the people. And I would just refer you to the website and highly recommend That as you're interested in these things, you look at these little brief 10 minute segments where we break down these commands. What what did it mean that God told them to go into Canaan and destroy their altars and break their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images? And we noticed as we went through that, that so much of the pagan worship of Canaan, it wasn't just wrong religiously. It's not like there was a theological disagreement between the Israelites and the Canaanites. But the depraved gods and the pagan worship of the Canaanites, it made them terribly morally. It made them filled with sacred prostitution, where the worship of their foreign gods would be connected to rites of prostitution with temple priestesses. It made them into literally child sacrifice. It made them into all sorts of different depraved sins. And this is why God said, no, you destroy their altars. You do not let them remain among you. And again, we go into this in greater depth in these conversational expositions that you can access on the website. But look at verse 17. Here's another idea, another stating of this idea. You shall make no molded gods for yourself. No graven images. No, should we say no golden calves? Don't do that again. Don't make these golden cups. You just can't make any conception of God that you like and call it Yahweh. No, you can't do that because there is a true God. He's reflected to us through the pages of the Bible. And we shouldn't represent him with some physical or molded form in that way. Verse 18, the feast of unleavened bread, you shall keep seven days. You shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib, you came out from Egypt. Well, again, way back in Exodus chapter 12, God told them to keep the Passover and then immediately following that, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The deliverance from Egypt was remembered in Passover. And then the purity that God asked them to live with was denoted by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven or yeast is consistently in the scriptures a picture of sin and corruption. And when God told Israel, I want you to live an entire week without leaven or yeast, it wasn't really for dietary reasons. It wasn't like putting them on some radical gluten-free kind of thing. No, it wasn't dietary. It was moral. It was symbolic. It says, I want you to walk in purity. I have delivered you from Egypt. That's Passover. Now live in purity. Live, so to speak, without leaven or yeast. By the way, it's just a beautiful pattern, isn't it? Isn't that how God moves in our life? First, he delivers us. Then he tells us to walk in purity. Some of you have this mistaken. Some of you think that God is saying to you in your life, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you walk in purity for a few years and then maybe I'll deliver you. That's not God's pattern. You don't earn your deliverance from God, never. No, instead he delivers you. It's the free gift of his grace. But then he says, now you walk in an unleavened life, in a pure life. And that's exactly what he taught Israel and what he teaches us. Now, starting at verse 19, We're going to go all the way through to verse 26. And it's basically a collection of several laws, mostly found previously in Exodus chapter 23. So let's take a look. He says, All that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep, but the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest. You shall rest and you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of the wheat harvest and of the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. The first of the firstfruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Wow. What a collection of laws. Well, again, it would be easy for me to just pass over this and really make no comment whatsoever. And to just say, look, go online and look at our conversational expositions. We talk about all these things in great depth. But let me just make a few comments. First of all, you saw in verse 19 where he spoke the fact that the firstborn belonged to God. All that opened the womb are mine. Israel was God's firstborn. And he said, now I want you to dedicate all your firstborn unto me. He also says in verse 20, and this is sort of a fascinating principle. If you notice there in verse 20, none shall appear before me empty handed. You know, in the context, God was talking about working unto the Lord and giving unto the Lord our time and our honor and what we do at the festivals and the feasts. But God gives just sort of this little principle. None shall appear before me empty handed. And I think that's pretty powerful. I'll just speak on it for a moment. This idea that everybody has something that they should give to God. Everybody. God deserves something from your time, from your talents, from who you are, from what he's done in your life. Listen, he deserves this. It's simply appropriate for the creature to honor the creator. Isn't that true? Well, how much even more appropriate is for the redeemed to honor their redeemer? And so every one of us owes God, every one of us, every one of us should give unto the Lord in some way. Now, I know what some of you say. Some of you say, listen, David, I I have so little. I I, when it comes to money or my bank account, you should see how little I have. I don't have anything to give to the Lord. Really nothing. Nothing. You, You couldn't give anything unto the Lord. Listen, nobody should appear before God empty handed. You should give something, something unto the Lord. You say, well, no other people have much more. They can. Well, great. I hope those other people with much more do what they should do with it. But what about you? Don't appear before the Lord empty handed. This is just a basic principle that he says. Then verse 23, he says three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord. There were three great feasts that God commanded the men of Israel to appear at Passover Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. And he said, everybody come to the tabernacle. Everybody come later on to the temple in Jerusalem. Come here for the Feast of the Lord. Now, there's a remarkable promise in there at verse 24 that I never noticed before. Isn't it beautiful that you could say, well, you study the Bible for years and years, that there's things you never saw before. I never saw this before. Look at it there in verse 24. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You see the promise that the Lord made to them? God said, if you'll be obedient to me and come to the feast of Passover, Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles, I'll take care of your hometowns because you could see with it. Well, all the men of our village, we can't go up and go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. What's going to happen to our town? People will come in. They'll rob. They'll they'll destroy. they'll, They'll abuse our women. We can't do that. God says, no, 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 no. If you honor me, I'll got you. I'll cover your back. I think this is an amazing principle, isn't it? That they didn't have to worry about obeying God and going to Jerusalem and honoring him at Passover because God would take care of him back home. And it just occurs to me, it may very well be that this is the word of the Lord for someone here this morning. Maybe this is the only thing that really God brought you here to listen to this morning. But here's what God would say to you. Honor God, obey his commands. And he'll cover your back. You're worried about it right now. You're oh, Lord, if I obey you. Oh, what's going to happen there? Oh, I know you tell me to do this in the word. But look at all these repercussions. And you know what God is trying to show you through this promise right here where he says, neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. God says, I did it for Israel. I'll do it for you. You obey me and I'll find a way to cover your back. I'm not going to say there's no price to pay. I'm not going to say there's no difficulty that will ensue. But don't you worry about you worry about obeying God and God will find a way to make it good in your life. Then he says in verse twenty five. You shall not offer the blood of sacrifice or my sacrifice with leaven. Again, leaven being a picture or image of sin. It shouldn't be in sacrifices. Verse 26 about first fruits when they come into the land of Canaan. And then at the end of verse 26, you all notice you wondered what I was going to say about it. That great command, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, just look at the videos that we have online. No, I need to say something about that. People wonder what. What is this thing about God saying? Don't do that. It never entered into your mind to boil a young kid in its mother's milk until you read this command. And I think, well, why would anybody do that? Listen, listen. This was a pagan fertility ritual practiced among the Canaanites. And God says, when you go into the land of Canaan, I do not want you imitating their pagan fertility rituals. So don't do it. It's cruel. It's superstitious. It has nothing to do with being you're trusting in some weird ceremony instead of trusting in the Lord, in the living God. So forget about all of that. Trust me. You shall not boil a young kid or a young goat in its mother's milk. Now you read that. And of course, I, I guess I should explain just for a moment that this verse, this principle becomes the foundation for so much of Hebrew and Jewish dietary laws in the rabbinic interpretations. In other words, the the rabbinic interpretations of kosher dietary laws doesn't just say you can't eat pork and shellfish, which would be a big deal to me personally right there. But let's just leave that aside. But they take this to mean that you should not eat meat and dairy products at the same meal. Because... It could cook in your stomach. And theoretically, the uh the, the milk that produced the cheese could have come from the cow that made the hamburger. And you could, in a way, be boiling. Well, I know it's confusing to me, too, but you get that. That's sort of the rabbinic logic that it comes through. And so therefore, and it pains me to say this, but under, you know, Kosher dietary regulations among the Jewish people, the cheeseburger is forbidden. How could this be? Surely that would make anybody relook biblical interpretation and just say, maybe, maybe I've been wrong about this. But again, we talk about that in some depth on these conversational expositions on the website. Let's go on now to verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words for according to the tenor of these words. I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Well, on the one hand, we're struck that God said, write it down. Moses, it's not enough just to leave it up to your memory. Write this down. This is important. So Moses wrote it all down and he prepared two new tablets of stone that he was going to bring down with him from uh, the Mount Sinai. Those two tablets of stone were going to end up being placed in the Ark of the Covenant that would be built, as we'll see in future weeks. OK, great. But that's not the part that really caught your attention from those verses I read, is it? The part that caught your attention from those verses I read where it says in verse twenty eight. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Ladies and gentlemen, all I can say about that is that is a miraculous fast. Now, to fast from food for forty days and forty nights would be absolutely impressive, but not unheard of. There have been other people, both in the Bible and other times, who have abstained for food for that long. Remarkable, but, you know, not unheard of. But to abstain from water for 40 days and 40 nights, ladies and gentlemen, that's nothing less than miraculous. And all we can say is this was some kind of miraculous fast that God uniquely called Moses to. You see, this is the kind of miracle and the kind of fasting that is never repeated in the scriptures and it's never recommended in the scriptures, never. So if somebody comes up to tell me and says, listen, God's told me to fast from food and water for so long, I'm going to say, well, no, the Bible never tells you to do that. That's not recommended or repeated in the scriptures. This is clearly a unique thing. But what a powerful way to picture simply this, to picture the fact, That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Ladies and gentlemen, this speaks to something very critical in our present generation. We live in a culture and with a spirit of the age that is so focused upon the physical, that is so focused upon the biological. Everything is about our bodies and taking care of our bodies. Everything is about our appearance. Everything is about our bodily pleasures and sensations that we live such a body focused life. And listen, I'm going to tell you, fine, take care of your body. It's wonderful. Oh, that's great. I don't mean to depreciate that in the slightest, but I'll tell you without reservation that you're called to be more than just a body. Even a good looking body and a good looking appearance and a healthy body and a happy body. All of that's fine. I don't put it down in the slightest, but you're called to be more. You're a man and or a woman made in the image of God. And there is a spiritual aspect to your being. And I don't doubt that there's some people who on the physical, so they, they look great. Everything's well proportioned and tone and fit and healthy and all great and medical tests would turn out fine. But if you could examine them spiritually, they're emaciated and sick. They're they're near death. And all I'm just simply trying to say is, please remember, you're more than a body. You should live for more than the physical sensations and pleasures of this world. But rather, you should understand that God has made you in his image. And that part of you that is most specifically in his image is immaterial. It's spiritual. And God wants you to give attention to the spiritual in your life. I'll say it again. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I don't care if that bread is some beautiful, well-made artisan bread from a boutique bakery. It still can't satisfy every need. There's still something inside of you that resonates to the spiritual. And that is what we need to also give attention to in our lives. As illustrated by this, look at how it works out in the rest of the chapter, starting at verse 29. It was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses's hand when he came down from the mountain. By the way, he didn't break this pair. That was the previous pair that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Isn't that remarkable? Moses came down and says he did not know that the skin of his face shone when he talked with him. Close communion with God physically affected Moses. It was so noticeable that both the leaders and the people of Israel were afraid to come near him, as it says in verse 30. Now, you would have guessed that after such a remarkable and miraculous time of fasting, Moses would have come down from Sinai looking emaciated and almost dead. But he didn't come down like that. He came down with a radiance to his face, with an outshining from his countenance, that everybody was so struck by that it made them afraid. They were hesitant to come near Moses. Hey, there's Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. How wonderful is that? Let's go up and meet him as they get closer. He goes, What's wrong with his face? It's shining, it's glorious. There's something holy and different about that. This is a man who has spoken with God in a way that we haven't. We're afraid to come near to him. Now, what was this? It is true that a life lived with God affects a person's physical appearance. I believe this. It'll affect your face. The peace of God, the joy of God, the love of God, the goodness of God. Will that not have an effect upon your face, upon your countenance? And friends, it should be evident in the face of anybody who follows Jesus. I won't make any uh, estimation or really comment on anybody who has, as, as, as they sometimes call it, has some work done, so to speak. But I will just say this. For some people, the best beauty treatment they could ever have is just the peace and the love and the grace of God shining all over their life and giving their face that kind of joy, that kind of radiance. After the first service, somebody came up to me and the man said that he'd been coming for for quite a few months. But just in the last month, he and his wife gave their lives to the Lord. And he said it just not long ago. Uh, they, they had gone to bed. And of course, as part of the wife's normal routine, uh, she took off all her makeup and everything. And so she went to bed in the morning when he woke up. He looked at his wife's face and she was so radiant and beautiful that he was absolutely convinced that that she had gotten up in the middle of the night and put all her makeup on. (laughs) Now, of course, when she woke up and told that wasn't the case at all, he understood what it was. Jesus had filled her life and it just, you know, I, I don't know how to say it. It just made her face better, right? There's something about the peace, the joy, the love of the Lord. And it's just true. I mean, it it should radiate from who we are and how we look in our life. If you've been walking with the Lord for, for any amount of time, you just shouldn't have that mean face. You shouldn't have that stressed out face. You should have a face that connects with the with the love and the peace and the grace of God. Spurgeon used to tell something to his preachers. I mean, it relates more to preachers, but by principle, you'll get what I'm talking about. He used to tell preachers, listen, when you preach about heaven, let your face be filled with the love and the joy and the peace and the radiance of God. Let it just shine out from your face when you preach about heaven. And then he said, when you preach about hell, he said, then your everyday face will do. (laughs) But look. What Moses experienced here goes far beyond that general principle. This wasn't just like hey Moses you're looking good looks like you maybe came from the spa or something like that wasn't that at all No no friends friends there was a spiritual radiance dare I even say a glory radiating from the face of Moses from his remarkable communication with God verse 29 says that his face shone while he talked with him While Moses spoke with the Lord, that's where he received. And we understand it's not that this this glory from the face of Moses was being generated from within Moses. No, it was being generated from the Lord and received by the face of Moses and reflected back to anybody who would see. And that's the only glory that you or I or any of us have. We're not little glory generators. All we are are glory receivers and reflectors. Just like the moon has no light of itself. Moses had no glory in himself. But just like the moon can receive and reflect the light of the sun. That's exactly, that's exactly what Moses did and what God wants it to be true of our own life. I'll tell you something else that seems glorious about this. Verse 29, and you see it right there. It says, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. How wonderful is that? then Moses, so in love with the Lord, so um, unaware regarding himself. You know, he's just, just self-forgetful. That He did not even know. Why is everybody running away from me, he says, when he comes down from Mount Sinai? Don't you want to talk to me? Hey, I'm back. They've been to a him Oh, Moses, we'll talk to you later. See you later. Why? Why? Well, the simple fact is Moses wasn't obsessed with himself. His focus was on the Lord. And friends, there's something beautiful about this because Moses was a genuinely and deeply humble man. The scriptures themselves tell us this and we need more of that today. There's an element among God's people today, and I don't say it's new. It's always been present, but but I look, I see it today. That kind of says, Lord, make my face shine like Moses's face so everybody can see how spiritual I am. So everybody can be impressed with. There I am, the man or the woman of your glory. Listen, it should be with us like we don't even know that our face shines. Who cares? It's not about us. It's about him. I, I fear that in the modern age of Moses were to caught the spirit of the modern age before he came down from Sinai. It would have been posted on, on his uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instapundit account and over and over again. Hey, everybody, look at my shining face. But Moses wasn't of that heart. He didn't have the spirit of this age or any other age. Instead, he didn't even know that his face shone. Verse 31. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near and he gave them as much as the commandments, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. There's something beautiful about this, isn't it? Moses, hey, don't be afraid. Come on, come here. I won't bite you. You're not going to get hurt. Come on, come on. First to the leaders, then to the people. And then, you know, what? he related the commandments that God gave him on Mount Sinai. Friends, this is beautiful. What did Moses do after his season of amazing communion with the Lord and bright, shining face? Moses, what did he do? He rolled up his sleeves and he got to work among the people of God. He didn't say, alas, you filthy sinners, I cannot associate with you. Let me go commune with my Lord and have my face shine again and again. You know, that's some weird, false spirituality, isn't it? But Moses, yes, he communed with the Lord. And then he got down among God's people and said, let's get to work. Let's do the work of the Lord. Let's do what I'm called to do. And it's just something beautiful about that. All right, let's pick it up here to the end of the chapter now, verse 33. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the face of the, excuse me, that the skin of Moses's face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Friends, Isn't that amazing? Verse 33, he put a veil on his face. And then in verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off. Moses goes in before the Lord to speak with Him. veil off. Lord, let it shine on me. I want to receive all of your glory. But when he goes out among the people, he puts the veil on. Now, why? I remember what I used to think the first time I read this. Like, well, of course, I know why. It's like a welder's mask holding in the glory. Right. People would freak out. They'd, they'd cry out. to, Oh, it's a God. It's a God. No, no, that wasn't it at all. It wasn't because the people would be so impressed with the glory of moses that's not why he put on the veil no actually paul in second corinthians chapter 3 verse 13 tells us why he put on the veil are you ready for this look at it here second corinthians 3:13 moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away do you understand why Moses put that veil over his face. It wasn't because the people would get too freaked out at the strength of the glory. It's because the people would see that the glory was fading on Moses's face. It would fade. It would pass away. Now, why was this important? Friends, you know exactly why it was important. You know how it would go. Hey, did you see Moses today? What he looked like? Well, looked pretty good. But you should have seen him yesterday, man. Yesterday, the glory was strong today. nah, not so much. I think Moses needs to go back to his quiet time with the Lord. If Moses would have been with the people of Israel with an unveiled face, they would have seen constantly that the glory was fading until he went in to go meet with the Lord again. And then it faded And that fading glory would cause them to lose confidence in Moses and perhaps in the Lord. So God said, put a veil over it. I don't want them to see the fading glory. Ian, let me give you some very good news. Our Savior is not Moses. Our Savior is Jesus Christ. And he has an unfading glory. And that's the whole point of Paul's bringing it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. To contrast the fading glory of Moses and the old covenant. To contrast that with the unfading, permanent, if anything, increasing glory of Jesus and the new covenant. So friends, don't come and relate to God on the basis of a fading glory and a fading, passing away covenant. Come to God through Jesus Christ Look to him because that glory was expressed so beautifully, so powerfully in the demonstration of love and grace that God put forth by Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and for mine. That was the glory of God on display, and it's just as powerful in its glory today as it was 2000 years ago when it happened. Don't put your trust in a fading glory, but rather in Jesus. One more thing before we conclude. Look at verse 35. It says the skin of Moses's face shone. Now the Hebrew word for "shone" there literally means to shoot forth beams. Now, it's related or similar to a Hebrew word that literally or the noun that means horns like on an animal. For this reason, they mistakenly translated it in the Latin Vulgate that Moses had horns. It was a mistaken translation. And when you look at medieval art of Moses, like this famous sculpture of him by Michelangelo, Moses will have horns, little projectiles. Look at the paintings. Just Google image it. Moses with horns. And you'll see all of it that you want to see. Now, this was all based on a mistaken understanding of the text. Ladies and I'm happy to tell you, Moses did not have horns. He had glory radiating from his face. But as great as it was, it was a fading glory. We look to Jesus who has an unfading glory. Father, that's my prayer. That you would leave each of us with this renewed focus upon Jesus. Looking to him as the author and the finisher of our faith. And Lord, thinking about this. And the unfading glory that you have for us, Lord, (laughs) Jesus, the fact that you let us share in that glory man, Lord, it's more than we can take in. And so we want to worship you. Jesus, I pray that right now in this time of worship, that we would very consciously come before your throne. You say we're seated in heavenly places. But that we would come before your throne. And receive something of your radiated glory and reflect it in our being. We want to worship you now, Lord, in spirit and in truth. Help us to do this, Lord, in Jesus' name.